three, two, one. Okay, this is the first of the It's Not Week to Speak podcasts to go alongside the magazine. And for our first edition, we've got a special guest. And not to say that people in the future won't be it's uh, for two reasons. One, this man is the Sunday Times football correspondent, but perhaps more importantly, he's also a founder member of Opening Up. So joining me for this first podcast is Jonathan Northcroft. Hiya, John. Hi, Mark. How are you? Um, yeah, not too bad. What we're, what we're going to do is, um, as, this is, as this is the first one, go through a few topics and just see where it takes us and then it'd be good to get some feedback from listeners about what they thought was useful and what they thought um perhaps wasn't uh, hopefully more of the former than the latter <laughs> none um, of it <laughs> yeah, yeah the last time um you put you wrote something for the magazine was a, a really interesting piece on gerd muller and dementia in football um how did you come to be thinking and researching that particular topic Oh, there's a few reasons. I mean, first of all, my, um, you know, there's some dementia uh, issues in, in, in my family. My wife's mother um, suffers from it. And that, that just is, is very, very normal. I think, I think dementia is something that touches pretty much everybody's lives at some stage. Um, and I was, I was in Munich, at, at Bayern Munich, um, a club, which I do do quite a few things with. Um, I was over there last December and, and I heard the story of, the kind of sad poignant story really of, of, of Gerd Muller and, and uh, how he is these days um, and I was really sort of touched by it because I mean Bayern Munich are a, a, a very sort of caring club when it comes to looking after um, their former players and that, that's something that is actually sadly quite rare in, in football and probably in sport that, that I think old athletes tend to get discarded by, by their industries but Bayern Munich are a bit different they do look after their former players and, and Gerd Muller um, who you know younger people might not be quite aware of but this guy was, was, was the ultimate goal scorer in the, in the late 60s and, and 70s he still has goal scoring records that that stand today. He got something like 400 career goals and a ridiculous strike rate of about 60 goals in, in, in 65 games for Germany. Yeah. An absolutely iconic striker um, and um, had been part of, of, of Bayern Munich's great European Cup winning team, but more importantly, very close to Uli Honus, who's really the sort of father of Bayern Munich. And Müller's um, has suffered from dementia for, for many, many years. Um, initially, it was something that, that, that was kept quiet by his family and by the football club because um, it felt to be a very private issue. But um, but it, it, people are aware of it now in Germany. But, but what really touched me was, was that, 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 that Muller had, had kind of, I think, was, was sort of drifting along. Um, his wife was, was sort of struggling to, to, to really look after him properly. And Uli Honus um, ordered the people at Bayern Munich to do something about it. You know, we've got to help him. And they devised this little routine where um, they would send a car in the morning uh, at about 6 a.m. To, to pick Gerd up at his house and tell him he was going to training. And, and you know, he would dress up in his tracksuit and they'd take him along. And they got the old masseur that he used to work with in the 70s to, to come in and he would give Gert a rub down and talk about training and you know 
my series would say, you know, are you ready for the weekend? And Gert would say, yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready. I'll score some goals and go, good, good. It's a big game against Freiburg and, and so on. And, and they went through this routine day after day, mm-hmm. um, keeping Gert, um, keeping Gert going really. And and, uh, and it had an enormous benefit for his wife, his family, of course, as well. And it just, yeah, it, it, it sort of touched me this this kind of poignant, poignant sort of scene really. Um, and, and made me feel, think all sorts of things about dementia, which is, as I say, I say in my own family, how actually the past is more vivid than, 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 and more tangible than, than the, the, the present and the here and now for, for sufferers. Yeah, I, I, I remember when I was reading the piece and, and I, I spoke to people who were, who were a little bit older than me and I mentioned the mm-hmm. name Gerd Muller to start off. And, and like you've mm-hmm. said, his goal-scoring record and he's quite iconic in terms of what was he known as De Bomber, and his record in the major championships and, and things like this. And I think it exposes a little bit of um, how people consider mental health because I remember mm-hmm. thinking, I mean, about the contrast between this guy who was top of his game um, back in the back in the mm-hmm. 70s and now, I suppose, reduced to being someone who does require that very, very specific mm-hmm. care and attention all over the time. And maybe it just... Um, automatically one would think oh well gosh it, it, how could it happen to someone who was that powerful a player and that important mm-hmm. when of course it doesn't discriminate because I, I do of course remember the, the, the stories around um, other players where these things kind of just leak out rather than be revealed uh, what is mm-hmm. it about football which is perhaps so keen to keep the lid on it and not talk any more about dementia and issues like that yeah, the, 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 there's there's a few things that, that trouble me working in football generally that I think I think come out from this particular subject. I mean, I mean, one as I as I touched on earlier, I, I think football has got a, a very poor attitude towards its own past and and the the soldiers, if you like, the the, the servants of the game um, from the past. They discard them, and, and modern football in particular. You'll have to spend ten minutes on Twitter to, to see this. That it's, it's all about the next big thing. It's all about um, novelty um, and, and not not really prizing what. So I think I think there's that strand that runs through it. But there's also the the the, the, the fact that football, sadly, uh, is still uh, a macho, um, a, a kind of strength is everything mentality um, sport. Uh, I think other sports have come further than football. I think football's starting to move, but but there's still an attitude that that you know um, anything that's a flaw is a weakness. Um, anything that's, that that deviates from the norm must be ignored. I think we've seen the way that even this, this the current issue of child abuse in football raised by Barry Bennell has really died away pretty quickly, um, having having been, you know, briefly sent the centre of the news, but but it didn't take long before it went it went to the back of people's minds and everyone concentrated on, on, on the Premier League again and, and the FA could concentrate on England. And I do think there's an attitude that football's this big it's it's a big piece of show business and, and it's and, and the people behind football, the industry, it's all behind it's all about keeping eyes fixed on the stage and, and anything that we don't want to talk about let's let's just brush that to the side of the stage um, it's all glitz 
Um, I mean, <laughs> talking, I'm sort of wondering why I work in it now, actually. But, um, but, but yeah, there are those elements. I don't think that's all. I don't, that's not the whole story of football. But I think those elements are still very strong. I think in the last, with dementia, in the last couple of years, and indeed other other sort of mental health issues, I think I think we are seeing progress. I mean, Jeremy Wilson in the Telegraph did a fantastic series of, of interviews with dementia sufferers. I mean, Jeff Astle and his family raised did most to raise the, the issue, and we've now seen people like Ray Wilson, the, the World Cup winner, I think Martin Peter, Stan Bowles. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's people are aware of now that, they, they, that they, these guys have, have ended up suffering dementia. And, and the, stat, the statistics are frightening, actually, the, the number of ex-football players that, that have had dementia issues and, and are now sort of more serious medical studies going on to see if this is linked with, with training and heading the ball. Yeah, of course, yeah. And I remember reading that about, um, about the case of, of Jeff Astle and, and it did make one wonder how many undiscovered cases there had been if perhaps people um, like the family of Jeff Astle had perhaps not pursued it in the same way. We, yeah. we had a, a, I had an interesting conversation a little while ago when um, we did a little piece for the Anfield Wrap where Stan mm. Collymore contributed to it and we talked a little bit about this idea that you've touched on there within football and sport in general, perhaps mirroring society in not wanting to scratch beneath the surface of yeah. mental health issues because you kind of don't know what's going to be revealed if suddenly, say, in, in any workplace, if you start encouraging members of staff and colleagues to actually take time off when they're suffering with stress or mental illness, then you look around and you realise that perhaps you don't have enough staff to, to cope with those days <laughs> off. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's. You're right. I think I think there's a fear with with a number of subjects, and this is this is one of them that that, that doesn't want to, un, un you know un take the lid off and, and just see see what's there because it might just threaten um, the the here and now, and you've only got to think of. Uh, I mean, I mean big example from this year was Stephen Colker. Um, I'd urge anyone to read the, the fantastic interview he did with Dominic Fifield and The Guardian, where um, this is a current, you know, England young player confronting mental health issues and, and, and the depression that he's he's suffered. But what, and he had, you know, for him, they spun off into problems with alcohol and gambling and all sorts of things. And these very, you know, a footballer's lifestyle is, is, is hard um, when, when you have these sort of issues, you know, so many temptations and there's so much pressure to, 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 to have a release and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, the thing that really struck me, I think this just sums up where football is, is that when Stephen Colker was really at his lowest, when, when he was really sort of suffering badly, his agent decided that it would be a good idea for him to move to Spartak Moscow. Now, that, that boggles my mind, you know, you take a young man who's suffering real fields of worthlessness and, and alienation and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Instead of getting him, you know, to take some time out, maybe to, to, to speak to somebody, to, to get some help, the idea, let's, let's send him to Moscow, that might be good for him, fresh start. And of course, there's a nice big agent's fee involved in that, in that deal. And, and that just, it summed up so much of where football is. I think, I think, I think the, the players are still seen as a little bit disposable and something to be monetized and um the individual gets gets very much lost in all of that and also 
this kind of macho attitude that, ah, oh, all he needs is a change of scene. I know, Moscow would be a good idea, you know. Yeah. And of course, it made Stephen's problems much, much worse. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I think that um, cricket particularly can be quite proud of the fact that it's now much more accepted for players to take time out due to yeah. issues that they're encountering uh, on the mental side of things than it is in football. So we'd have, we go back to, say, Treskothic, Trot more recently, lots of players across the county circuit. Whereas mm. I, I just know that if there was someone who was at the, the peak of a Premier League football career and and said honestly that the reason they're not playing this set of games is because of their mental health or stress, the yeah. reaction from fans and pundits and whoever else would be to say, you know, in quotes, you're on a hundred grand a week, that's what you paid yeah. for to deal with yeah. the pressure. Um, which is, I would imagine for someone in that situation, the kind of thing that makes you think, well, I know that I should be coping with it and I'm not, and therefore I feel even worse about it. Absolutely, I, I think it would. They would also, I think opponents would also uh, start saying stuff from the field. I think that you're right about the the attitude that the, the punditry would take, which is, you know, how can you be stressed on a hundred grand a week? Well, read Stephen Coker's interview. You know, um, it, 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 it's. I, I think that another point that has to be made is there's a difference between football and cricket, which is. Not just a difference in the culture of, of the game and the sport and the crowds and, and, and maybe the way it's played, but it has to be acknowledged that, that being a footballer, especially in England, is to do something that is, is, is the most insanely competitive field in, 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 in the world. You know, there are thousands of top class footballers vying to play in the English Premier League to pay so much money and, and and I think the fear of taking time out would be I will lose my place. Now if you're Marcus Triscothic, you're still gonna be Marcus Triscothic um after six month break. But but football is it's so people are so disposable because there's this huge competition that there would be this fear that if, if you take, you know, even even a two month injury layoff you see players losing their places yeah. so to, to be known as somebody that, that needed to take some time off um, for something that you might need to take time off in the future I, I think there's a, there'll be a fear of admitting that and a fear of losing their place yes. um, and, and what of course we need is, is just to have a, a more mature attitude and caring attitude towards things and, and maybe change the disposable culture but I have to say I don't that side of things I don't see changing in the in the meantime, when um, you know we've just seen another summer of enormous transfer spending, uh, which which reinforces the notion that, that that you know it's about novelty and, and disposing of players and getting new ones. Yes, yeah, it is pretty. Oh, it's it's hard to look at from the outside as someone who has mm. previously had a great interest in football, and then without going into the plight of Coventry City have found it le uh, less easy to, to uh, enjoy the sport. Now, from a, perhaps a more positive perspective, uh, as well as your work writing um, weekly with the, for the Sunday Times, recently, um, well, fairly recently anyhow, you'd authored the book Fearless, which was the story of Leicester City's remarkable Premier League victory, uh, championship victory. So, what was it within that team and that set of players and, and coaches and staff that was able to 
sustain what was so incredible that they were top after a few games, never mind after the full season. Was there anything that you identified there that they did mentally that yeah. perhaps other others didn't do? Yeah, I the was, um, and it's, it's, it's funny you know, when when Leicester run away running what the the secret of the football here. You know, this 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 team's got something, and and actually, well. They, they did and they didn't but what, what they what they did have was um, I would say something that, that in any workplace or, or, or any anyone any anyone that's been in a, in a group environment would recognize this when when you get to a stage where the, the, the group is 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 so much more than the individual and so much more important to you than you are yourself I think that's where Leicester got to and, and that was one of the reasons they were so resilient when people talk about well they have the mental strength to get over the line well actually they, they, they ended up in, in the run-in they ended up increasing their their lead in the table and winning by 10 points so they actually had more mental strength than the so-called big clubs they got there by it's, it, it's interesting but the, 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 the key thing is empowerment they had a manager Nigel Pearson who has got one image which is of this kind of uh, you know, almost military bully boy, um, very unsympathetic character. Um, where actually, there is an element to to Nigel Pearson that's like that, but pretty much only with journalists. Uh, the reality with, with players and the people we work with was somebody that was was unusually for a football manager willing to devolve power and and allow his players and his staff to to basically take ownership of of what they were doing. So. For example, he made his head of recruitment, Steve Walsh, also his assistant manager, so that the guy that was recruiting players also had an impact, an input into what the team was going to be. That's that's really logical. You know, he he he, he got a young um, guy called Matt Reeves, who, who was a sort of fitness and conditioning expert, um, and you know, basically said to this guy, "What do you need? What do you want?" and and Matt Reeves came up with a very unusual program, which was really involved almost no training at all. I mean, Leicester, everyone recognised how sharp they were physically, but they, they actually didn't train very much because Matt Reeves' theory was that, that actually footballers tend to train too much and, and it's more important to a forefront recovery. Now, when it came to the players, it was exactly the same. They, they, they spoke to the players all the time. There was actually the, like daily questionnaires, you know, using, they, they, they'd give the players iPads and they'd fill in little daily tick box questionnaires and things like how are you feeling today you know well, how did you sleep was a question they would ask and that's a really important question because how did you sleep will reveal all sorts of answers that go way beyond you know what, you know sleeping issues in your, your bed it will give gives a window into somebody's home life um they asked the players how they do you need days off how, how do you feel about that um, they, they, they are about the players have this very strong culture where they police themselves, self-policing and dressing room, where um, really the Nigel person didn't need to impose much discipline because the players did it themselves. For example, they had this system of, of fines for anyone that was, was late for training that the players enforced. And what they did was they, they got the security guy at the training ground to give them the CCTV stills um, of anybody coming into training, you know, even 30 seconds later than the, the half nine cutoff point, 
and, and these, these, you know, this, usually we had marriage, and, and the, the photos would get put up on the dressing room wall, and, and you'd have to pay, you'd have to pay a fine, um, and then, it, it, you know, they, 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 they became a team that that really um, had a sense that they were in charge of of their own destiny, and I think that's that's pretty unusual in football. It sounds, it sounds kind of very simple. Um, but I think it's it's actually in football there's still this idea that the manager is the dictator, the players are the, the, the kind of I don't know the chattels, the the, the the guys that just go along with the word from on high. Um, and of course that's fine until you start losing, and then when you start losing, um, the players start questioning the leader, but they haven't actually taken any responsibility for their own performance, so they don't look at themselves, and, and you know inevitably the manager ends up getting sacked. I think, yeah. I think, I think what happened at Leicester, the, the, the under Nigel Pearson, which then Claudio Ranieri was able to manage for for, for that one glorious year with his style, um, was a team that was very much in charge of it. So, and I think we saw that actually when Ranieri was sacked last year, and you know the the, the players pretty much rallied and 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 got themselves out of trouble and, and went back to basics and told Craig, Craig Shakes, but the first thing he did was he asked them how they wanted to play. And they told them, and, and so I think the culture's still there at Leicester. That, that was the key to it. That's fascinating. Um, I, I suppose at first glance, people would concentrate a lot on Ranieri and some of the yeah. idiosyncratic behaviour and the dilly-ding, dilly-dong and everything like this. <laughs> but, it, but it seems from what you've said that the foundations that have been set up by Pearson were then so embedded and, and so accepted by the players that they then use that when they were given perhaps whatever Ranieri's insight was to just move through to what would seem to be a, a, a logical finish for them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Ranieri was, was, was clever because he did come in with his, his own traditional more Italian ideas, which are, the you know, if you think of Fabio Capello, the drill sergeant, that, that is still an Italian model of coaching. And, and he had his ideas about training. He wanted to change. He wanted to change the way they played and all that kind of stuff. But he's a very, he's a very empathetic and, and shrewd guy, Ranieri. And, and he, he realised pretty quickly that that he was actually much better um, sticking with what the players were comfortable with, um, and and you know continuing to empower them. So he let them get on with it. And what he was very good at doing. If we're talking about a mental side of things, was you know the dilly the dilly ding dilly dong the 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 the, the press conferences were you know endlessly you sit listening to a guy who's he's almost pretending that he can't speak English and you know that he's a very intelligent man who's worked in many countries in the world and has spent about five or six years of that in England and he speaks perfectly fine English but you know this comedy Italian act that I nearly loved to put on very shrewd because he knew that 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 kept my side of the business happy. Gave us all headlines, um, gave us all knockabout, you know, fun to have, and this just took attention away from the team, took pressure away from them. It was it was fantastic. I mean, it's funny. David Walsh, a colleague of mine, hated the dilly dong dilly dong stuff. He he he, he said, "Oh, yeah, it's one thing about this Leicester story that leaves me cold as the, the kind of schmaltz of that dilly dong dilly dong thing." But and I know what he means. I mean, nonsense. But actually. I think it was genius by Ranieri because he was acting the clown and acting the clown in order to take the take all sorts of, of heat and attention away from his his players. It was it, it was yeah it was it was it was a fusion of a couple of things. Um, 
But uh, but the, the the way they dealt with pressure, thanks to Renew and thanks to their um, their own culture, was 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 you know something almost unprecedented. I think. Yeah, it, it is remarkable, and I think even though people might be tuning into this from a cricket perspective. I think you'd ask anyone who follows sport across the world about what had been one of the biggest um, upsets of uh, of all time in sport, and this would rank right up there because you can have upsets in in a cup competition, a one off game, but to do it over the course of the season and the physical demands, as well as the, the mental demands of it, absolutely, uh, yeah, unbelievable without being trite about it. And um, just as we move towards the end, then, John, and um, what I'd be interested to to ask you is from your perspective on the other side of it um we of course people would always come to to yourself and your colleagues and want to know exactly what's going on within football but i've always been fascinated with with the mechanics of your job and the, the pressures around deadlines and this kind of dreaded writer's block is there anything that that you've put into place to make sure that you're always kind of on top of your game uh, mentally to be able to write the wonderful pieces that people then use to to be able to uh, t- to find out more about the game. Uh, well, yeah, th- thanks. I mean, they're not always wonderful. I wish I, wish, I wish I did have a formula for dealing with um, things like writer's block, and I, I, sadly, that's 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 something that that, that that any writer I think has to just deal with as a matter of course, but. I'm, I'm, I'm better, I'm, I'm more experienced now, and I think, I mean, I'm really glad you raised it, because it's something I do think about a lot, the, the kind of mental side of, of, of being a journalist. It's a, it's, it, I'd, I'd say the, 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 biggest, the biggest thing that a journalist has to deal with is uncertainty. If, if, if you like a job where it's set, you know, set out hours, nine to five or whatever, and you pretty much know what you're going to be doing from day to day and from week to week. Well, journalism is absolutely not for you. It's the absolute opposite. By its very nature, you know, you are reporting the news. You're waking up in the morning and what's going to happen today? That's what I'm going to report. You have no control over it. Um, And the hours are all over the place. Um, You know, I I spent the last 15 years working from home. which you know, it's, it, it, it's it, it's great. You can you can you know pick the kids up from school at any time you like. You, you can give yourself half an hour off, but you'll also find yourself working at eleven o'clock at night to, to finish stuff. Plenty of times, um, you know, you know, you've got evening games. Um, you, you can go from evening game to. Um, I mean, I remember Mark Hughes used to enjoy a, an eight thirty press conference at the Blackburn. Um, in the morning, which yeah, Mark Marquis didn't really like talking to the press, so he decided that if he invited us all at eight thirty a.m. to um, northwest of uh, Lancashire, then probably nobody would turn up, and he was right. So, but you could you, know, you go you go from your night game to your eight thirty press conference. As I say, the hours are all over the place, and you don't know what you're doing from week to week. And, and, and from the mental side of things, the biggest thing you've got to deal with is uncertainty. You've got to you know, the fact you could have written a really good article, you could have had a really good week, um, and that's fine. But but you know the next day you start with a totally blank page, and there are plenty of really good journalists in the business. So although you're, you you do a good article on you know Sunday, your rivals on Monday come out with something just as good or even better, and 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 suddenly you're under pressure because his editor's happy and your editor's asking why you didn't have it. And, 
it, you, can, you can always never win. So I think that, that's, that's a side of things that you've got to deal with because you, you kind of need stamina to, to keep, keep going and, and keep, I guess, you know, churning stuff out. And the journalists write more than ever now, you know, because of the internet, we're, we're all filing, not just for our papers, but for online um, outlets as well. So we're actually having to keep finding stories and keep writing and keep churning away. No, no, no. I was just going to say that the, 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 very quickly, the, the uncertainty, of course, is can also be a benefit. And, and that's I try and look at it like that. And actually, I try and tell myself, and it is true, that I never wanted a nine-to-five job. So that is what I signed up for. And that's that I've got to sort of celebrate that. And, and I think you're quite the best way to sum up journalism is you're quite often under pressure, but you're never bored. I think that's it. Yeah, and I mean, I, I've noticed even in the, the time that we've known each other how much your your role and that of people in equivalent jobs has changed from, mm. okay, we don't need to go into the tale of print media sales declining and, and all the rest of it, but seeing your grid pop up on Sky, mm. BBC, or on the radio uh, a lot of the time as well. So that uncertainty, I think that, that message for people that that can actually be something to be embraced is a really positive way of looking at it just as we move to to finish then um as i said right at the very beginning as well as you work um writing for the sunday times and your your authorship of um, fearless and all the different fingers all different pies you've got your fingers in um it's, it's also the case that um you were one of the founder members along with myself uh, chris and adam of opening mm. up and as we move towards the end of the cricket season we kind of get into uh, I mean, I do anyway. Start to think more about uh, about Alex and how, when the cricket yeah. season was going on, it was his favourite time of the year. And then some of the struggles he had became more pronounced during the close season. Just to finish it, it, it off, what would you um, what would you put forward as your principal memories of Alex and why you decided it was so important to set up opening up? Well, it's, it, yeah, I, I, I was. You know, Alex, as I'm sure for you as well, Mark, is is still very much a presence in in, in all of our lives, and and that says a lot about the the person he was. Because you know, you meet you meet so many people in your life, and and, and Alex was just one of those people that that, that left his mark, and he, he he touched you um very much with his. I mean, when I think of Alex, I think I I smile because I think of his his absolute raw positivity as a as a as a cricketer first and foremost and I also played football with them and you know it, just as he dived around behind the stumps um fearlessly as a wicket keeper then you know football he was, he was like a human missile he was just throwing himself at the ball no matter what, where it was and, and just a guy that 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 despite um what he was dealing with himself tended to tended to make other people happy and was had incredible emotional intelligence as well and, and, and you know I was a lot older than Alex but, but speaking to him always kind of left me thinking about something um, and funnily I was, I was talking about Alex just last week um, a colleague of mine and this just you know Alex was despite being being a lot younger um, somebody that I, you know I always took something away from the conversation with him, he, he tended to, to leave leave his mark. And, and funny enough, I was I was talking to a friend about Alex just last week, and this feeds into our previous conversation. But um, I've got a colleague 
um, another journalist who, who has signed off from work and is dealing with um, stress and depression at the moment because it is what I should have added it, it is a consequence of it, it is something that, that, that plenty of journalists have to confront because of the, the pressures of our job and, and I think in a previous era you just need to look at the amount of alcoholism in journalism to see how journalists used to deal with those pressures and, and it's still a problem so you know, I've got one of my good friends is is off work at the moment and, and he is He's trying to deal with it, but um, he's also finding it very difficult to talk to people about what he's going through and and acknowledge that he's um, off work because of depression. Because he's got a fear, because he's a football journalist, he's got a fear that that you know within football culture it won't be um, it won't be viewed sympathetically. And I I was encouraging him to just speak to people about it and just tell people because you know. You have to for your, for your own benefit as much as anything else. People will be fine, and they will. By the way, they will. And I and I was talking about one of the things that that I got from Alex was his willingness to talk about his his mental health problems and his, his you know attempts to to help others who 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 have those problems too. And and I found him quite inspirational in those in in, in that way. And we had a good chat about Alex, and and you know. I said to him, my my memory of this guy was somebody that gave a lot to to everyone else around him, despite what he was going through, and and um, he actually it was important for him to talk to other people and and um, encourage my my friend to do so. I hope he I hope he hope he does hope he does that. But uh, irrespective of that, it was quite nice to talk about Alex and, and and think about think about him again in that way. Yeah, I think that's that's perhaps the the legacy which above all he will have in that um, mm-hmm. when we, we we name this podcast the magazine and the campaign it's not weak to speak and often people will ask oh was it that Alex didn't talk about his mental health and the response is always well he did he was he was very open about it and mm-hmm. there's perhaps areas where people could have could have listened more could have been known a bit more about what mm-hmm. to direct into but um, irrespective of of, of how Alex. Um, ended his life it was when he was alive it, he was someone who would have been an absolutely passionate advocate of talking about things and and if anything he was he thought about others more than he did himself so i mean that's yes, not so. not something which um we can say to too many people now what we'll do here is is wrap up thank you very much for your time john um i'll thank upload you. this and i'll also put with it some links regarding stephen colker gerd muller mm. Um, the, the fearless review because I'm sure you've got a holiday coming you need to pay for um, and <laughs> also a little bit about Alex for those who were listening at the end yeah. and perhaps didn't know the story so been a pleasure for you to join us John um, and we'll speak again soon Thanks Buona, send me the, send me the link